Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. We are starting a series today we're calling Dear God. Now imagine if you could write God a letter. Imagine if you were... You, you felt that it was an open conversation in which you could ask him any question in the most authentic way that you could. And, you know, God, I don't know if you know this, but God is, is, is not afraid of questions. He's not afraid of authenticity. He says, come, let us reason together. And so he wants us to be able to bring the deepest questions of our heart. And so if you wrote a letter in which you could write down the deepest questions, maybe of your heart or of somebody you know in the world, what would those deep questions of life be? What might be written down? That is the series in the next few weeks. We have a number of friends that are going to join us and help us process that through. And that begins, of course, this week uh, with a good friend of Rock Point here. Uh, he has been here several times through the years. He's well-known in the community. But his ministry started back in 2003, 20 years ago. Conversations began with he and a friend of his uh, who's a skeptic, who stands before you today, was a skeptic at that time, um, and then this Muslim who was made new in Christ. I don't know if I can remember the phrases that we used back then. It's been 20 years. And then this Jewish uh, believer in Jesus, and the three of them came together and started an evangelism ministry. At the time, it was called Aletheia International, and after a few years, that group realized that nobody could pronounce that or nobody knew what it meant. And so they changed the name to Embrace the Truth Ministries, and that ministry had a clear purpose, and that was to launch one individual in there as an evangelist that would be taken across the world to share the gospel. He has shared the gospel as far as Indonesia and as close as Sterling Heights, like he will today. And beyond those giftings and the incredible heart that he brings, I will have to mention one other thing you may not know about him, which is when he was younger... This individual could bounce a basketball while riding a 10-speed. Don't try this at home. And don't try it again, Abdu, because you won't be able to do it anymore. We're getting too old now. Why don't you put your hands together and welcome our good friend here, Abdu Murray. Well, good morning, everyone. You know, as, as Mick shares that story about uh, the 10-speed, uh, yeah, that was the case. I used to do it uh, no-handed. I would be able to turn my bike no-handed while bouncing a basketball. I could do it behind my back. Uh, it was, I just spent a lot of time with a basketball, which probably comes as no surprise to you. Um, uh, one thing that uh, was interesting is that so I, uh, Mick lived about two blocks from where I lived. Uh, we grew up in Troy. And so I'd ride my bike over to his house, and you know, we'd hang out, and uh, back when people went outside, you know, before um, electronics kept us inside. Um, I was uh, biking back from his house, and I was going to my house, and on the way, there was this 
this house where these group of girls used to always hang out outside. Again, back when people used to go outside. And I wanted to, uh, you know, I had to bike past them. I had a crush on one of those girls. This was probably like freshman year of high school or whatever, maybe eighth grade. I can't remember. Anyway, um, so I pass by, I wave at them, thinking I'm cool, like performing a circus freak act. Because um, nothing says that's boyfriend material, like a guy who can perform circus tricks. Um, and they said, hey, I'll have to come back. I, went out, I passed by them and said, we want to ask you a question. So I thought I'd be cool. And I turned the, 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 the 10-speed, no-handed, and bounced the ball behind my back. And I got the turn, I got the bounce, and then I didn't sit the landing, though, because I fell flat on my face right in front of them. <laughs> and uh, I don't remember the conversation after that. Um, <laughs> whatever happened after that is a blur. I remember the mortifyingly embarrassing spot there, and I, th I remember thinking, it fits with our theme, actually, uh, today, because we're talking about the hiddenness of God. Where is God when we need him the most, it seems, or why is it even more obvious? And as I look back on that experience, I think to myself, how could God let that happen to me right in front of her? You know, <laughs> if God was good, I wouldn't have fallen. Um, but I did. But if I could get a little more um, uh, intense as we set up the question we're going to be talking about this morning, which is, you know, the hiddenness of God. Why does God seem so hidden? Shouldn't he be more obvious if God loved us and wanted us to know him and believe in his existence? Shouldn't he make the evidence for him more obvious? Um, I'm reminded of the, a passage from a, a book that is not a happy book. Uh, it's a book that I think everyone should read to get the full grasp of this question and many others. It's a book called Night by a man named Ali Wiesel. Elie Wiesel is a Holocaust survivor, and he recounts in his book, Night, what it was like to go through uh, the internment at Auschwitz. When he got there, his father and him were segregated from his mother and his sister because there was, uh, they, they segregated them by, by sex, and he never saw them again. He never saw his mother and sister ever again after that day as a boy when he went to the death camp. And this is how he describes that first night which is why the book is titled this. He says, never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, which, was which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke that is at the crematorium, you know, the, where they were burning the bodies by the thousands. Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. And then he also wrote this, some talked of God, of his mysterious ways, of the sins of the Jewish people, and of their future deliverance, but I had ceased to pray. How I sympathize with Job, the one who suffered so much. I want to put a pin in that, because we'll come back to that in a moment. How I sympathize with Job. I did not deny God's existence, but I doubted his absolute justice. And as he's going through this terrible experience and one of the most horrific things in human history, that a whole entire group of people had to suffer through. He talks about God and what was happening to his faith in the context of an execution of some people right in front of him where he was at the camp. Several people were being hanged, including adult males and a young child. They were being hanged to death. And <clears throat> the, you know, what normally happens when you get hung and the platform is up from underneath you, the weight of the body sort of finishes the job. Well, this young kid's body weight was not nearly enough to finish the job, so the kid hung there for quite some time before he expired in front of all these Jewish men 
who are being made to witness this horrible act of cruelty, which itself is a horrible act of cruelty to make someone watch it. And Elie Wiesel talks about this instance, and he says, where, he said there's a man behind him who's watching this boy struggle for life even though it, it was over. The man said, where is God? Where is God? Where is he? Someone asked behind me. For more than half an hour, the child in the news stayed there, struggling between life and death, dying in slow agony under our eyes. And we had to look, we had to look at him, full in the face. He was still alive when I passed in front of him. His tongue was still red. His eyes were not yet glazed. Behind me, I heard the same man asking, where is God now? And I heard a voice within me answer him, where is he? Here he is. He is hanging here on this gallows. In other words, what he's saying is, is that a God who is good and all-powerful and just and loving must be dead, and my faith is like this young boy. It's somewhere between life and death, and death is definitely certain. We ask in those moments, where is God? Why does he seem to hide himself from us in these moments? Why does he seem in our pain to hide himself, in our uncertainty to hide himself? But also, you might never have gone through anything nearly as traumatic as this. Or maybe you're not going through a season where you're thinking to yourself, all this pain, a God who is obvious, who would want me to, sh- who want me to believe in him, would show up in this moment. Maybe you're not going through that. Maybe what you're going through is just a season of doubt. Maybe you're trying to reassess whether you believe the things you've been raised to believe. Or maybe you've never been raised in a family that has any kind of faith background. And you're wondering, why do these Christian people have so much faith, given how unobvious God is. It seems to me, you might think, that if God wanted us to believe in his existence, he would make it far more obvious. And it seems to me that he's not obvious at all. So I want to address these two issues, but I want to park for a moment the sort of existential angst, pain-driven part of this question. I want to get to it. I don't don't, don't want to disrespect it, but I do want to approach it logically at first so we can build an understanding of what it means now to take the logic and the undergirding answers to to this question and then apply it to our our lives in the moments of our deepest struggle. You see, the burden of proof rests on the one, and I can tell you this as a lawyer, the burden of proof rests on the one who is making the claim. So if someone says, if God exists, he would make himself more obvious, you now have the burden of proving that statement. Now, I'm not saying you're making that statement out loud, but even you have the burden of proof for yourself. In other words, if you make this statement, you have an obligation to see that through to to its end. Can you actually establish that God should be more obvious then, or more obvious than the evidence that currently exists for his existence. Is this something he is obligated to provide us with is simply more evidence. Now, when you find this out, that the burden of proof is on the one who is making that statement, things seem, seem to change a little bit. Because you have to ask yourself essentially two questions. What do I mean by obvious? And what do I mean by the probability issue of whether or not things are as obvious as they should be? You see, here's the thing. Let's assume for a moment that it isn't as obvious as it could be that God exists. Let's assume that for a moment. That doesn't mean he doesn't exist. It just means that you don't have the answers just yet. He's not as obvious as you'd like him to be. It's a subjective issue. You see, if you're going to say that God likely does not exist because there's not, there hasn't been as much obviousness to the, to the evidence, then you're taking on 
a burden of proof that's almost insurmountable. You see, the absence of evidence does not equate to the evidence of absence. The absence of evidence does not equate to the evidence of absence. There are plenty of things we had no evidence for 300 years ago that we now know exists. Black holes are a good example. We didn't even think about the idea of black holes perhaps 300 years ago, and now we have evidence of their existence. We can actually photograph them. But we didn't know they existed. Even when we had theories of their existence, we had no empirical backing for this. And so the absence of the evidence that would confirm our theories doesn't mean that our theories are wrong. It just means we don't have the evidence just yet. See, if you are going to say that the evidence for God is not nearly good enough and therefore I am justified in not believing in him, then what ends up happening is, is that you are basically amounting that statement to this belief that you have exhaustive knowledge of existence, that you can look and you can see everywhere and that there's no evidence for his existence. And so that justifies your lack of belief. But here's the problem. If you have exhaustive knowledge of all of existence, then you're using your exhaustive knowledge of all of existence to disprove the existence of a being who has exhaustive knowledge of all existence. And then you end up becoming God. So it can't be that there is no evidence. Can't be that. Because it's almost impossible to meet that burden. Rather, the question really hinges on this. And this is where we give it its hardest uh, sort of edge, the, the, the edge we have to actually contend with. If God is the God that is described in the Bible, <clears throat> a God who seems to want us to know he exists, he should make it more evident than it currently is. I'm not saying there's no evidence. I'm just saying that if, it, if the God of the Bible is who you say he is, Given his character, he would make it more obvious, and it's not obvious, which means he's probably not even there. So it's a probability issue. They're not saying it's for sure he's not there. You might be thinking maybe he's not there. In fact, probably he's not there because the evidence just simply doesn't add up. So the first thing to think about, and this is the part where we, we, we want to wrestle with in the time we have before I get to the existential issue, we want to wrestle with this issue, about the probability. It's more likely than not that God doesn't exist given the lack of obviousness here. A couple of things. The first thing is this, is that you have to recognize something within the Christian faith. The Christian conception of God is that God is not a God who is interested in you assenting to his existence. God is not the kind of God who simply wants you to know, I exist. That's good enough. Let's move on. That's not what he's interested in. In fact, the Bible says in James that even the demons believe that God exists and they shudder. It's not a matter of assent, of intellectually agreeing, yes, there is a God or there's probably a God, because that doesn't make, make a difference. God is not interested in that. He's interested in relationship with you and with me. Those demons who acknowledge his existence forsook that relationship. They rejected that relationship, and that's the issue. He's not trying to get you to agree he exists. He's trying to get you to see that he loves you, cares about you, and wants the best for you is interested in that relationship. Now, that makes sense in a Christian faith. That might not make total sense in other forms of faith, but in the Christian faith, we have a God who is one in his nature, one God who exists in three persons, three distinct personhoods, one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who have eternal community from eternity in the Trinity. And so he defines relationship. When the Bible says God is love, that actually makes sense 
because a being who is in communion from eternity, from eternity, who is the seat of all of existence, who defines love, therefore creates you and me and this universe so that love towards him is a possibility. Not because he needs it. He doesn't need it. He already has it within himself. He doesn't do it so that he can have relationship. He creates us so that we can have relationship. It's a selfless act. You know, I think about this, my existence. Think about my existence for a moment. I obviously exist. Here I am talking to you, and you obviously exist as well. I was born, clearly. Talk about obvious. Is, do I derive any benefit, any benefit from acknowledging that a woman gave birth to me and that that woman exists? Is that the real benefit? Or do I gain benefit not from merely assenting to the existence of a woman who gave birth to me, do I actually derive benefit from a relationship with that woman? And now that I think about it, when you think about the idea that I, I'm here because a man and a woman got together, and because of that, within the bond of matrimony, actually had a child, and that child ended up being me. I owe my existence to their existence, but they owe their existence to previous people's existences. And so on and on, the chain goes back into eternity. It seems that way, but it actually has to have a stopping point, you see, is that I'm a contingent being. It's a fancy way to say, I can't explain my own existence. I didn't cause me. I have a cause, and that cause has itself a cause. My parents have a cause, and their parents have causes, and on and on it goes back and back and back. The problem is it can't stretch back into infinity. It just simply can't do that. Because if you think about it, if all of the causes keep going back, well, who created that, and who created that, and who created that, and who created that, you're going to end up going in an infinite loop where you can't ever start counting up to now. Do you see how that works? If you have an infinite past, you can't start counting to get to now, but here we are. So there must be a starting point. There's got to be a starting point, but that starting point in this life, in this existence, has to be beyond time. It has to be beyond all material causes. It has to be uncaused. It has to be eternally existent for us to actually have a point where we can start talking about time and causality. Do you see this? So the very fact of our existence is an obvious, in one sense, proof that there's got to be an uncaused cause, because otherwise, this is all nonsense. So that seems obvious. And that cause wants us to have relationship with him. Now, sometimes someone might say, well, look, the, the reality is, is that he might exist, he might not exist. It's just not enough. I mean, my goodness, wouldn't you expect God, who cares about the whole world, John 3:16, to make it so obvious, and the Bible says that he is not desirous that any one of these little ones should perish. He doesn't want any soul in this world to perish. He wants all to come to a saving knowledge of who he is, yet not all come to a saving knowledge of who he is. So wouldn't a God who wants everyone to believe in him make it so obvious that they can freely choose, because it's so obvious, to believe in him. Seems like he would want to do that. But does that really change hearts? Does that really get to the matter? Does that really cause people to change their orientation towards God? Is evidence all there is? Now, I'm a strong believer in evidence. I mean, I'm a lawyer. 
and I do this, I, I give the evidence for the credibility of the gospel on multiple continents. So I believe in the power of evidence, but I don't think it has ultimate power. I don't think it has ultimate power to change hearts and minds. I'll give you a story. Maybe you've heard me tell the story before, but it's, a, it's, it's good enough for you to hear it at least one more time. <clears throat> uh, I had a work colleague <coughs> who used to, uh, before I got into ministry, uh, who would come into my office every so often, and he was an atheist, and he was a great guy. We had a good relationship. He'd come in, and he'd say something snarky based on what happened in the news, and he'd say something like, oh, Abdu, I just read the news that uh, this God you claim loves people so much and cares about them, let the roof of a church fall on 200 of his worshipers while they were worshiping him. Yep, that's a God who loves everybody, and he'd walk out. I'm like, well, after a while, you do that, and now there's a tax. You know, you have to come and sit down and sit with me. And that's a tax for your snarky comment. Um, so he did. He came down and he sat with me. And I said, hey, um, what's your biggest hang-up? And he said, it just seems to me that God would be more obvious. He would make himself more obvious. He'd provide more evidence. This is not enough. So I asked him what would qualify as enough evidence to get him to believe. And he said, you know what? If there was a big, gigantic golden cross in the sky that was visible for all to see across all time zones in the, in, in the world at all, at all times, and emanating from that golden glowing cross in the sky were the words of John 3.16 in every conceivable language so that no one would not hear the message and they could all hear the message that God so loves the world and all that stuff, then I might believe because it's so obvious that he exists. That's a tall order. Now, I happen to believe that evidence that is roughly equivalent to that obvious probably does exist to some degree, but here's the problem, I said. So let me ask you a question. And we had a good relationship. Again, I could, I could get a little bit testy with him if I wanted to. Um, I said, you smoke, right? Because he was a smoker. He said, yeah. I said, when did you start smoking? He said, age 17. I said, you're about my age. I remember when I was age 17. It was fairly obvious to everybody. Everyone knew the evidence that smoking was cancer-causing, among other things, and addictive. Did you have that evidence when you started smoking? Yes. So you knew that, can that smoking could cause cancer and is addictive. And he said, yes. I said, so you had all that evidence and it was so obvious, yet you did it anyway. Can you tell me again how evidence changes your mind? You see, people don't always believe what is quote unquote obvious. Sometimes our desires, our circumstances, whatever it is, makes things seem less obvious than they could otherwise be. See, this is the problem with the word obvious itself. Obvious is, is sort of a subjective term. What might be obvious to you is not obvious to somebody else based on a whole lot of factors. Who knows? And so it becomes a subjective thing. And so there's no real way to actually measure how many uni units of obviousness should God actually have. You know, we don't measure it through distance. We don't weigh it. Um, on a scale, we don't uh, uh, analyze its composition in a lab. Obviousness is almost the kind of thing that is subjective. Now, I believe some things can be obvious. I'm obviously speaking to you today. And so are some things that are plain as day, but other things are not necessarily that much. I was there, by the way. I was where my friend was when he was snarky like that. It took me nine years to come to faith after a diligent search. I got to tell you, it was not nine years of thinking, it's not obvious enough. You're not obvious enough. I found the answers I needed sufficient, not all the answers. I still don't have all the answers, by the way, and I'm never going to, which is a glorious thing. 
Um, but I found sufficient answers to give my life to Christ so I could have sufficient certainty or probability, more likely, that he exists and this is who he said he was within two years of my search. It took me seven more years to wrestle with what it all means and the consequences it was going to have in my life. I often say this is that the truth is not hard to find, but it is hard to embrace. And that's why we're called what we're called, embrace the truth. Because it's always a consequence, but it's always a benefit. And the benefit, it outweighs it. But I do think that the evidence for God is obvious enough to anyone who I think is actually open-minded enough to say, what kind of evidence would we expect? You know, Blaise Pascal, this uh, wonderful theologian and speaker um, and uh, thinker and scientist and Christian, once made the comment that God has put enough evidence into this world so that faith in him is a most rational endeavor. You can believe in him and it is rational to do so. But he has left enough evidence out that trusting in him based on pure reason is impossible. Because there has to be some element of trust. Now, some come to think of faith as a blind thing. And the Bible recommends to you no such thing as blind faith. There is nowhere in the Bible where you're going to actually get a cogent argument that blind faith is rewarded. I know people are going to say, we walk by faith and not by sight, uh, and all these things. That's fine. But that faith that you walk by, where you don't necessarily see what's in front of you, you don't see the future, that is not based on what is so, so unknowable that you just believe it blindly and without any thinking. No, you walk by faith and not by fully seeing the future because you do see the past. And you know what God has done for you in the past. And so you can trust what he will do for you in the future even though you don't know it yet. Yeah. That's not blind faith. That's exactly biblical faith. That's trust. And so Pascal is saying that there's enough evidence where you can actually trust him even though you don't have all the evidence. That's what he's saying. But there's an element to this where that sort of gap between full evidence and full understanding, that gap where we don't know everything, that's actually perfectly plausible and reasonable given the kind of God Christians claim exists, the kind of God described in the scriptures. So <clears throat> I'm going to reference a couple of uh, passages of scripture, and while I go on and talk, if you have a device, turn to these. If you have an actual book, um, you can turn to these as well. <clears throat> uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, but also Psalm 13. So Hebrews 11, verse 1, and Psalm 13. I'm going to reference another passage of scripture really quickly. You don't have to turn there necessarily. But <clears throat> In this context of obviousness, um, there's enough left out, and there's a reason. I think the Bible gives us a reason why some stuff is just left out. First of all, I doubt our brains could actually handle it. I mean, think about, think about what it takes to know everything, or to be able to be told, this is where I was. When you were going through that difficult problem, this is what I was doing and every single moment. In other words, God, who is an infinite being, whose ways would be infinitely higher than us, he is the source of all of creation. We are but an infinitesimal fraction of that creation. How would we expect that our finite minds could possibly grasp everything this God is doing and not go insane in the process of trying to figure it out? He gives us the favor, I think, in one sense, of not giving us everything, but he gives us enough. So why not everything? Not only to keep us from going nuts, 
but I think also to give us something beautiful, to give us something beautiful. There's a beauty in the uncertainty. You know, it was Gavin Ortland who was talking about Blaise Pascal on the hiddenness of God and why isn't he more obvious. Um, Gavin Ortland said this. He said, those who feel trapped by uncertainty, as I did in college, must ask themselves if they are quite certain about their need for certainty. For ultimately, the demand for certainty springs from the assumption that we know what we need and what we want. But do we? Hasn't most happiness and truth already come to us through experiences that involve surprise, surrender, and risk? Perhaps certainty is overrated. Do you hear what he's saying now? He says, haven't you experienced some level of joy, of ultimate joy, because you didn't know what was coming, because you didn't know all the circumstances, and suddenly you're surprised to see it actually work out. Maybe you applied for, your, for a job you thought you had no chance of getting. Maybe you applied to a school you thought you had no chance of getting into. Maybe you tried out for a team you thought, I saw the players, there's no chance I'm even going to get on that team, let alone start. Or that relationship I'm trying to mend and trying to heal It'll take a miracle for that to work out, and you have no expectation, given all the evidence, no expectation it's going to happen, and then you're surprised by that joy, to quote C.S. Lewis. Think about that surprise you get from a lack of certainty that results in something coming your way in your life. Maybe, Gavin Ortlund says, this idea of knowing what's coming all the time and having everything laid out in front of us, spoon-fed to us, maybe it's not all it's cracked up to be. Maybe you'd be missing something if you didn't get that level of uncertainty that drove you to delight in the surprises. You know, the scripture speaks to this. Proverbs 25, verses 2 to 3, where the Lord says to us, through this ancient wisdom, he says to us, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings to seek things out. It is the glory of God to conceal something, not so that you'll never find out. It is the glory of God to conceal something so that you can revel, and you and I can revel in the glory of seeking something out. Did you ever have a problem? Did you ever have an issue? Whether it was you know, homework or something to do with work or something to do with your life where you just don't get it, you don't understand it, you struggle through it perhaps for weeks and you finally come to that conclusion where you're like, I get it. It suddenly snaps into place. Everything is clear now. Remember that feeling? That feeling of jubilation, of that elation, of that, oh my goodness, I get it. There's actually a physical reaction that happens in your body when you experience that kind of joy of the delight of discovery. The Bible says that God's glory is to conceal something so that you and I can glory in discovering it. It is a gift to us that the evidence isn't so obvious that we are spoon-fed all of our worldview, that we're spoon-fed our relationship with him. We discover him newly all the time. Friends, I've been married for more than two decades happily, wonderfully married for more than two decades to a wife that I know through and through, and yet I can tell you there's not a week that goes by that she hasn't surprised me in some way. And I delight in the discovery. Sometimes something will happen, and she'll have a reaction, or she'll have a comment, or some kind of an insight. I'm thinking, my goodness, really? You came to that conclusion? That's, you thought that? Like, I would have thought you would have thought this instead, and, and that's, that's remarkable that you think that because she is shaped by her experiences as well. And so I get the delight of discovering something new about a woman I've been married to for decades now. That's a wonderful feeling, friends. 
And God says to you and to me, I'm not going to give you everything up front because to do so would rob you of something profound and wonderful. You know, it's a funny thing. Michael Shermer, um, the well-known and noted skeptic, who is the, uh, I think, editor-in-chief of Skeptic Magazine, was doing a debate with, an with, a, with a Christian, and he was saying, you know, Christians are arrogant because they claim to have all the answers, they know everything. I don't know anybody who says that, by the way. But anyway, um, he said that, you know, this whole idea that you have certainty about where everything came from and God did it and all this, he's like, that's one thing. He says, but we skeptics, we claim we don't know. And it's fun not to know because you get to learn some stuff. Like, I don't know, that, that's great. I agree with you, 100%. But do you see the problem? So the same guy who will say, it's wonderful to not know everything because you get to discover things will also chastise Christianity because God's not more obvious. <laughs> Maybe he's not more obvious because of the delight that someone like Shermer actually says comes from discovery. There's a beauty in that a beauty in that. Let me give you just one snippet of a way in which the Bible as he speaks to the obviousness of God's existence through the evidence. Hebrews 11, chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, verse, verses 1 through 3. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now that sounds like it's commending blind faith, but just read a little more. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, by trust, we understand that's knowledge. We understand that the universe was created by the word of God, listen now, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. I don't know if you fully comprehend the sophistication of the cosmology in that statement, that what is made and what is seen was made by things that are not visible. So if you look at standard cosmological thinking today, like Big Bang cosmology, basically all the, the models that have any credibility right now in the scientific community are saying this. All matter, energy, space, and time began to exist in a finite point in the past. In other words, all the things that we can see, feel, taste, touch, smell, all this stuff was created at a finite point in the past which means that before they existed, none of those things existed because things can't make themselves. That's ridiculous. So there had to be, in the physical world, there had to be nothing. And since nothing does nothing, something outside of the physical world that's not bound by matter, energy, space, or time had to create matter, energy, space, and time. And so we have to figure out what that actually was. And so there's no real scientific conclusion as to what that was, but there is definitely a metaphysical conclusion to what that is. If matter, energy, space, and time can't create themselves, then the being who creates all these things has to be beyond all of these things and cannot be visible. What is made that is visible has to be made by something that is unseen. That's what standard scientific cosmology basically says today, and the Bible's been saying it for 2,000 years. It's sophisticated. And this is one sentence out of 66 different books cobbled together by the Holy Spirit so that you and I could have enough evidence to believe that God exists. So beautiful is the obviousness of creation. This echoes, by the way, Romans chapter, chapter 1, where it becomes very obvious that God exists because of the world around us. But Joseph Plunkett wrote this beautiful poem 
called I See His Blood Upon the Rose, where he sees God in all of creation, not just in the design, but in the meaning behind creation, that creation doesn't just exist for God's basically hobby, but there's, a, there's, there's something of theological significance in this. I see his blood upon the rose and in the stars the glory of his eyes. His body gleams beneath eternal snows. His tears fall from the skies. I see his face in every flower. The rocks, sorry, the thunder and the singing of the birds are but his voice and carven by his power. Rocks are his written words. All pathways by his feet are worn. His strong heart beats the ever-stirring seas. His crown of thorns is twined with every thorn. His cross is every tree. When you look at creation, becomes very obvious this is who he is. When you look at history, I think you get the same picture. So I think logically speaking, it's just not a way to go to say that just because he's not as obvious as I'd like him to be, that he's not as obvious as you would expect him to be. But then there becomes the problem of pain, that which obscures the obviousness of God and who he is. And the question then becomes, is he obvious out in the world? Maybe. But maybe, maybe like Elie Wiesel, we think, I don't doubt that God exists. I just doubt that God is good. The Psalms invite this question. As Mickey was saying in the introduction, God invites our questions. They're really hard questions. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? The psalmist says, David says in Psalm 13. How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Is God hidden? And at the end of the psalm, David recognizes that what God has done sustains him through the times when he doesn't know where God is in the middle of his troubles. I will sing to the Lord, he says, because he has dealt bountifully with me. You know, it's interesting. Elie Wiesel pointed out that in the middle of all his suffering, he sympathized with Job because of his suffering. And then he says that I doubted God's goodness. You know what's interesting? Job never did. Job doubted his own goodness. But he never doubted God's goodness. And what's really interesting about the book of Job is that in the whole period where Job is suffering and his friends are questioning, what did you do, Job, to deserve all this? Job never really questions God's goodness, <clears throat> but he does have questions. He doesn't get it. At the end of the book of Job, God appears to him out of the whirlwind. Now, what's interesting about the book of Job is that oftentimes what we think about that ending, because God says, gird yourself like a man, and answer me if you can kind of a thing. Um, that we think God is chastising Job for his lack of faith or for his lack of trust. And there's an element of that to be sure. But what God does when he comes out is he never answers any of Job's questions. He simply gives him a list of 60 plus questions of his own. And he says, where were you when I did this? Were you there when the creation of the world happened? Were you there when I tamed these certain beasts and caused these rivers to go this way? Were you there for any of that? Now, it sounds like he's saying, Go back to your place, Job. How dare you question me? I think that that's part of it, but a bigger element, I think, is the compassion here, is that he's saying, Job, you have never cursed me. You have never said that I was, I was not good throughout all of this. And I want you to know something, Job. I did all this. Were you there when I did that? No, you know that. Were you there when I created this? No, you know that. Were you there when I did this? No, and you know that too. If I could do all of that, can you trust me with this? I think there's a tenderness to Job's questions. I think there's a tenderness to God's answers through questions. 
everything. You don't know everything, but I do. And all I'm asking you to do, Job, is trust me. So Elie Wiesel has a God on the, on the gallows, a God who is dying. And he says, this is just the evidence that my faith is over. Because if God was good, he would do something about the sin that put that child in the gallows. And my response to that is, the God of the Bible is a God who hangs on the cross, who did something about the kind of sin that puts a child in the gallows. He doesn't leave us to this world. He doesn't leave us in the state of uncertainty. As a matter of history, he died on a cross. As a matter of history, he rose from the dead. He does not leave you in that state where you don't know where to turn. He asked you to delight in discovery and recognize that he is who he said he was, that you are who he says you are. You know, you think of the disciples. They had all the evidence they needed to put their trust in Jesus, and they did it for three and a half years. They followed this man. They lived with this man. They gave their lives up for this man, willing to die for this man, and then it's all shattered. They thought he would vanquish the Romans, and then it seemed like the Romans had vanquished him. They did not know what to do with it. And for three days, God was hidden from them. But there was work going on, and there was something they could not possibly fathom. You see, maybe God seems unobvious to us because we don't know what he's doing, because if we knew, we could not handle it. And then if we did know, there wouldn't be that level of surprise when he comes and gives us that elation, that maybe God is working something opposite of what we might think. That's what the cross is all about. God conquers death through death. He doesn't simply end it. He doesn't vanquish our enemies with a sword. He vanquishes the inner enemy with a cross. Surprising. Not obvious to us, but no less true. James Stewart says about the cross, the triumph of God's foes he used for their defeat. He compelled their dark achievements to subserve his ends, not theirs. They nailed him to the tree, not knowing that by that very act they were bringing the world to his feet. They gave him a cross, not guessing that in that he would make it a throne. They flung him outside the gates to die, not knowing that in that very moment they were lifting all the gates of the universe to let the king of glory come in. They thought to root out his doctrines, not understanding that they were implanting imperishably in the hearts of men the very name they intended to destroy. They thought they had God with his back to the wall, pinned and helpless and defeated. They did not know that it was God himself who had tracked them down. He did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquered through it. That is not obvious until he does it. And then it's like the most obvious thing in the world. That he cares for you and he wants communion with you. And that's about to happen in just a few minutes. You're going to take some communion. And as you do that, remember, this is not about the obviousness of God's existence, but about the obviousness of God's love for each person. When Nikki comes up here and we take the bread and we take the wine, I want you to think about what the purpose of all this is about. And Frank Graff puts it beautifully in his hymn, Does Jesus Care? Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song as the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long? Does Jesus care when my way is dark with names, dread, and fear, and the daylight fades into deep night shades? Does he care enough to be near? Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong? 
when for my deep grief there is no relief, though my tears flow all night long? Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? And my sad heart aches though it nearly breaks. Is it aught to him? Does he see? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Jesus cares. Friends, he is not hidden in your time of need. May you know that in this communion. Can we just take a moment and thank our brother Abdu for all that he shared with us today? I realized also, I realized as you were talking, it has been 20 years for you and Nicole. Keep her in prayer. <laughs> no, I love them both dearly, and I love and I'm so thankful for the ministry that God has given to them to share with this world. There will be those up front here in prayer um, if you are seeking that today. But take with you this. God is writing your story. I know every chapter doesn't always make sense. We know that. We don't have the answer to all questions. We have the one who is the answer to all the questions. Let's walk forward with him today. Father, thank you, God, for this day. We thank you for Jesus. I thank you, God, again for Abdu and his ministry and Nicole and all that they do. Continue to bless them, Lord, we pray. And help us to carry your spirit and your presence forward in every breath of our life. We pray these things in Jesus' name and the church said, amen.